Hello, folks. This week's ad read is for Christopher Buellman's The Black Tongue Thief, the first installment in a brand new fantasy series presented by Tor Books that's been drawing quite a number of positive reviews. And while we could have read this ad copy to you straight, we decided to turn this one into a big budget fantasy blockbuster audio trailer. Ready, Scott? Oh, yes. Set in a world of goblin wars. Stag-sized battle ravens. And and deadly magical tattoos. Uh, Christopher Buellman's The Black Tongue Thief begins a new fantasy series critics are calling Dazzling. It's dazzling. Kinch owes the Taker's Guild a small fortune for his education as a thief. Galva is a knight and handmaiden of the goddess of death. She's searching for her queen, missing since a distant northern city fell to giants. Oh no, my northern city has fallen to giants. Common enemies and uncommon dangers force thief and knight on a journey where goblins hunger for human flesh, krakens hunt dark waters, and honor is a luxury few can afford. Christopher Buellman's The Black Tongue Thief is filled with dazzling adventure, dark humor, and also a, a, a perfect blind cat who deserves love. Available now wherever books are sold. And hey, uh, speaking of things that are being sold in bookstores, you know what you can pick up at Barnes & Noble right now, Eric? What could it be, Scott? That would be a copy of Fangoria magazine. Fangoria has been in operation since 1979. It's been going for over 40 years and is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to get them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. Now, if you want to head to Barnes & Noble, you can pick up a copy that way, but also... You could just sign up online. And if you go to Fangoria.com, you can subscribe and also use the code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. I'm gonna jump right into it because I'm really excited to talk to today's guest. So look, given his career output, I think it's safe to say that today's guest is a friend to the genre community. Comic book nerds will know him from Spider-Man Homecoming. Sci-fi slash gore fans will know him from Lee Wanell's Upgrade and Ridley Scott's Prometheus. While horror fans will recall the time he spent trapped in an elevator for the M. Night Shyamalan produced Devil. He can next be seen in the forthcoming apocalypse comedy How It Ends. But for today, he's here to talk about one of our favorite Stephen King stories, 1979's The Long Walk. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Logan Marshall Green. Logan, how are you doing today? I am terrific. Thank you. 
<laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I love the dramatic I'm not going to talk that slow the whole time, I promise. <laughs> you were a person that I really wanted on this show, not only because, well, basically because of what I said in the intro. I felt like given the amount of uh, genre work that you have done, I felt that you might be a, a King fan or at least a horror guy. I am a, an enormous fan of yours. And I am particularly a fan of Upgrade and Prometheus. So I would like to ask you some, just a couple of, you know, kind of break the ice questions about those projects. Is that all right? Yeah, shoot. I'm, that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm excited to uh, release the hounds. <laughs> Excellent. How, when, when you got the call to be on Prometheus, like from Ridley, Ridley Scott is resurrecting the Alien franchise after all this time. Like, I'm, I'm curious what that conversation was like and uh, how you reacted to it. Well, let's, let me stop you there. It wasn't a conversation. It was, well, there was a conversation. It was just me and myself because I didn't know what project I was getting involved in other than it was a Ridley Scott science fiction and that he really liked the tape that I, you know, gave of the two pages that I was allowed to have. That was all the information you had? That's it. A.B. Kaufman, she'd just seen me in an off-off-off-off-off-Broadway play and brought me in and said, you would be perfect for this. I put myself on tape. Ridley responded, and I got to read this science fiction script by Ridley Scott. And I'm, I'm no slouch there. I knew what that meant. I knew how long it had been. <laughs> You'd heard said, of him by I this said, point. Give me, yeah, and I said, give me that script. Let me go into your little bathroom because uh, you're not allowed to leave the building. <laughs> with the script. And I sat in A.B. Kaufman's, you know, side room and read this script called Prometheus and around, you know, page, you know, uh, 40 or whatever, I stopped. And I looked out across the Hudson River and I said to myself, holy shit, this is an Aliens movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And then I said, well, I don't have to finish it. <laughs> 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 and I walked out and I said, I'll do it. <laughs> Man, that's a, and, and y'all shot down in New Zealand, correct? No, we, sh we shot mostly in. Or was that Covenant? Pine. I think that was Covenant. I don't know where Covenant shot though. So don't quote me. No, I think we Covenant shot was in, in Australia. Oh, right on. Yeah, in uh, London. Yeah. But we also went to Iceland and Scotland and. Um, and got those exteriors there. So, you know, Ridley likes to travel. He likes his locations because I think he would be, um, I think he said it before, you know, that that's kind of the first part of movie making is finding locations nowadays because the earth's just been, it's just been seen. So there's so many space movies. That's the only thing they've been shot. Is it intimidating to be on a, a Ridley set? Like be taking direction from him? I mean, he's such, uh, let me rephrase. He's such a, you know, top shelf dude. Like I would personally be like scared shitless. So I'm just I was, I was scared shitless. The cast was amazing. I was scared of all of them. And more than anything, I was fucking terrified and frustrated with these spacesuits. You can't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and even though there's like, they're mic'd and everything, Ridley, you know, only has a one way mic. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so and when he would come and give direction, he was giving it to you through a glass dome. I mean, he literally at one point was so frustrated with himself and the logistics of it all. He, he was given a note to Numi, I remember, and wrote on a piece of notebook paper 
And then we were like, what? And Numi and I were looking at each other giddy as kids because we both knew, you know, it's Ridley Scott. And <laughs> he just like slapped this piece of notebook paper against <laughs> Numi's <laughs> dome. And it just read, and she laughed out loud. I didn't know what it said yet. Only she did. And it looked at it after and it said, do less science fiction. <laughs> what, what does that note even mean, though, in the context? I don't, I don't know. And, and I think Numi and I both, after we s- fought over who was going to get to keep it, um, <laughs> you know, we both were trying. But I think we understood it. It was just like, don't do what he, you know, what he has done. He's trying to do right. everything new. That's what Ridley does. You know, he's always trying to explore and heighten So. Prometheus. I've seen Prometheus getting a lot of ten, uh, of attention over the past year because one of the criticisms that people leveled against that film was that the people in it, the characters, were often reacting in a way that was just completely unbelievable. And one of the scenes that was pointed out for this was like when the dude goes in and uh, there's the snake thing or like the eel in the water. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And was like, why would you pick that up and touch it? And, you know, willingly take your mask off in this environment and shit like that. And, you know, now I've I've seen it come up like a bunch of times on social media. We were so wrong about Prometheus. Like this is if if nothing else, the last year has taught us that people will definitely take their masks off in a hostile environment and do things (laughs) they know they should not do. I'm, I'm curious if you're like even aware of that being kind of a meme. I've seen it enough that I feel like it qualifies. I am aware of that <laughs> correlation between that moment with my character and, and a lot of well, half of us here in America, it seems, um, doing whatever the fuck we want. So, yeah, I have, I'm aware of it. And um, I'm glad that I can. I mean, my, you know, I'm uh, I'm not that character. My my wife, my name is wear a mask. Um you know, I, uh, but I, I do believe that all of those choices, those gestures and unbelievable or right. extremes, they seemed then 10 years ago. Um, I mean, 10 years ago, seems like a lot longer than 10 years ago. So Eric, you got any, uh, Prometheus questions you want to get in here? No, I don't have Prometheus questions, but I, I would like to talk to you about working with another, uh, guest that we've had on the show, Karin Kusama. Um, she came on and, and just kind of blew us away with her take on Carrie. That was her mm. choice. <laughs> and like, I was so flattened by just how insightful and sharp she was. I mean, you obviously you watch her, her films and you know that, you know, especially the invitation, you know, that she's got a, a, a keen mind, but like, how was it like working with her as a director? Like, I just feel like just based on our one hour that we got to spend talking with her, that she would always have all the answers. You know what I mean? It's like, it didn't feel like there was anything that could phase her in that, in our, you know, limited experience talking with her. Yeah, that's how it was. She, she came in prepared. She came in guns a blazing, prepared and super malleable with uh, departments <laughs> to be collaborative. And she is incredibly intelligent. So uh, that doesn't surprise me at all that she came in, you know, with a Bible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For uh, for especially a movie like that, I could see Carrie being um, a movie that would you know would reside in her quiver. Yeah, she, she took a, a an interesting angle of of how this thing that was written by a guy 
who was adapted by another male screenwriter that was then directed by a, a very famously horny male, <laughs> you know, guy De Palma, uh, turned out to be one of like the biggest feminist films of, of her uh, upbringing. And, and so she had a really great angle, like just on exploring how, how, you know, how that worked out. Yeah. Um, and just how like keenly insightful King was and in, into the, the mind of a teenage girl, a scared teenage girl and, uh, uh, and all that stuff. It, I don't know. It was, it, it was one of the early episodes we did where we're just like, holy shit. Like we love having people who are way smarter on the show than we are. Like, Guys, uh, I, I, you might want thing. to sit down. Oh, okay. I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you today, but <laughs> no, uh, you're good. Keep going. And you got to work with uh, John Carroll Lynch on. Yeah, I mean, that's that. Yeah, it was that. I'm working with Karin. I mean, it means you get to work with guys like John Carroll Lynch, (laughs) you know? Um, It means you get to work with a bunch of thespians who think and artists who create. And that um, movie just fucking rules. That movie rules so hard. Like, I've seen it half a dozen times, and every time. It doesn't lose any of its goddamn power. It's just like from scene to scene to scene, it just blows it out of the water. It's it's my favorite film of hers by for it's sure. One of my favorite films I've made, top to bottom. You know, very. It's just got so much cohesion, and um, I just I think it's so it's just so seamless. In it has so many seams yet. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. yet it has so much stitching. It is still very seamless. Was it a tense the ending? Set? That, that is that is such a huge, huge thing, especially with a story like that. Like you walk out of that movie and you will always remember that ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it a tense set? No, not at all. No, furthest furthest thing was like a uh, summer camp. Jesus, that makes like you we, were all, even... we were all best friends. It was you know I was t- <laughs> I was on another po- you know there's a podcast about it. If you like that movie. Let me just yeah. plug it. There's an invitation to an invitation. It's a, I gotta yes. say, it's an extremely well-made podcast. By it's Jim a great Canola. show. Yes. And I was on his, you know, I was actually on his podcast, uh, telling him about that same, asking, answering that same question. And um, it, it, as I told him, um, I'll tell you, it really was um, a beautiful t- filmmaking, 21 days of filmmaking. And it was a rare experience, you know, because of how, just beautifully it on, you know, it just, it just, you know, it's, you have to get lucky and we did. And we, we also had fun and um, we just had a lot, a great group of women and men. So let me ask you this, how far into a shoot do you know if it's going to be a good set or not? Like the experience you're describing with the invitation is amazing, right? A career highlight, but surely the inverse must be true from time to time. So I'm wondering, like, in your experience, like, how long does it take before you realize, like, oh, I'm fucked for, like, three, four weeks? Or also, you know, this is going to be amazing. I don't know. I don't think I've, I can – I don't have a measure on it, man, because I actually – because that is such a rare experience, my process was really thrown in the air there. I had to really come out of my own process in order to be civil so that I could have those relationships and that, that let them be organic, of course. But – you know, my process is very no fucking nonsense. You punch in first and you you kick ass and you take names and you hit your mark and you know your lines and you you're always on time, you know. Right. Um and you treat everyone with respect. 
So I just lead by example. I don't, my kinosphere just doesn't allow that energy in. I got to say it doesn't. And if it's there, I'm unaware of it. And I'm glad it just hasn't. I've been very fortunate to not have, you know, I'm, it's probably me. <laughs> I'm probably the asshole. I'm probably that guy. <laughs> you know, you're like, there's I no assholes around. <laughs> sure. I think we would have heard about it by now. Yeah. You know, like if, <laughs> if Logan Marshall Green was just like a fucking terror to work with, you know, like doing like Jared Leto shit to his co-stars and, and what have you. Like, I, I really feel like we would have probably yeah. heard about that by now. So it's probably not you. Yeah, so um, I like being the ref. I like just not being about. <laughs> I don't like being part it of the either, problem. What's it was that? either that or you're or you're really good at covering it up. So one of those two things are true. <laughs> true. You know, there's a, a there's a trail of dead behind me. I'm sure. So they will all <laughs> I'm be on your show soon, and we'll tell enough. He story. has a, a team of twenty publicists that will make anyone disappear <laughs> within twelve hours. No questions shiny. asked. Always shiny. <laughs> uh well, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. Like, how did how did Stephen King first come onto your radar? Was it a movie or a book or what was it? Well, I think I, I'm trying to remember, and I'm sure there was like I want to say there was this raggedy old, thick, stinky brown stained soft cover Cujo, mm-hmm. yeah, in like my dad's library and he i think told me about cujo you know this rabid dog and that always kind of i was like ooh, you know he wrote, told me about stephen king maybe i like maybe it was that cujo but it was definitely the one of the earliest was the bachman books and i think i i can't tell if i read running man and then went to verhoven or if i saw verhoven and then went to bachman but it was one or the other, and it was they were in right after the other, I'm sure. But it was around then, so you know, um, not too soon after it it came out. But I, I would then go on to really look in and be about that of age to really see all those King films. Um, my mom, you know, we didn't we didn't have a lot of money, we didn't have cable or anything like that, so uh, we didn't see Pet Cemetery on HBO. But you know, we would rent them and. Once I was of age, I, I guess, yeah, I guess it was about that time uh, in mid eighties. Uh, was your was your dad a regular horror reader? No, no, he was like a, a Louis L'Amour, you know. <laughs> uh, he was a big reader, but he was not a genre guy. He was much more history um, uh, drama. So it's interesting then that he would have a copy of Cujo sitting around. Yeah, I don't, and again, I, I may be putting that in my father's house. That could have been, you know, my mom is actually who, um, I've, I think I've said this before. My mom was actually the, the, the nerd in the house when it came to like sci-fi and genre. She was the one who introduced me to aliens. Um, we're, we're finding that a lot actually. And that's in our personal experience too. Um, uh, like my mom was the king reader. Like she had her, uh, I think it must've been the, um, the book club edition of like the stand, the original hardcover, you mm. know, but it was the smaller one, <laughs> you know, this, yeah. it wasn't quite, quite as huge, but it still had that great, like, uh, uh, like Luke Skywalker esque, you know, sight fighting the scythe dude in the plague mask cover. And she, I, yeah, I mean, she that. had all that stuff. And, and like, I remember when misery came out, like, I remember her reading it and her telling me, like that, like no shit. Like she sat down and just read it in 
uh, like didn't realize that she, the time was passing and she sat down to read it and uh, finished it in one sitting. And like, it was that gripping verb, but it like, Mm. she didn't sleep at all that night. So she was uh, for sure. My, my entry point. And I think Scott, you have a similar thing, right? It was, it wasn't, it was your mom who was reading King. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was reading King. Uh, my dad didn't, he read like world war two books and shit about boats. Right. You know, like, uh, no, not really fiction stuff so much. Oh, it was all, I don't think he had any use for it. You know, like even today, you know, like my dad's favorite here, I'll tell you my dad's two favorite movies. They're top gun. Cause he was a pilot for a while. And I think he really wanted to be Tom Cruise and top gun and, uh, Lawrence of the, of Arabia. Whatever the current format is, whether it's like VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, he always has copies of those two movies sitting around. But that seems to be where his imagination ends. You know what I'm saying? Like, he doesn't seem inclined to explore outside of these very specific comfort zones. But my mom, my mom read virtually everything well i'm sure you guys have covered this the reason why the three of us were drawn to king by our moms and the reason why moms might be more inclined to read king than dads is he writes such great females Hmm. he writes incredible female characters and I feel like that's a, a great entry point for that gender. And that's wh- and of course, it doesn't, you don't have to scratch too deep. He's politics. He's pretty woke, you know. Yeah, you could plead a case for The Shining being like a, uh, you know, Wendy is Wendy's the voice of reason, basically. You know, she's the hero of that story. And the guy involved is just this low life, basically. You know, he's... Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he's already broken the kid's arm. He's a fucking alcoholic. He's, you know... Quote unquote, working on a novel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. I I can see that. I don't think in his early stuff he was too strong with female characters, but I think it is a thing that he is he has developed over time and he's gotten but I mean, outstanding Carrie, with it. Firestarter. Carrie, he man, he no, threw the manuscript like, of Carrie away in the trash like while he was writing it, like a few days into that. And and his wife is the one that rescued that. Like yeah, in a, and very in specifically, many, he threw it away because he didn't feel like he was capturing the female voice. And right. uh, and Tabitha came in and was like, "Let me help you with this. This is what mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. This is uh, how how uh, women mm-hmm. think." Not saying that that he wasn't the main voice on that, but I think that he needed the you know when you go bowling and you put up the the kids guardrails or whatever on the side so you can't gutterball it. I think Tabitha was the was the gutterball protector mm-hmm. for for King on Carry. For sure. It makes sense, though. Like, if you if you task me at this age with writing a book about a teenage girl, like, I would just say no. Like, ab- <laughs> like absolutely not. I think like, a lot of others would, too, nowadays, too. You know, we yeah. are all in our lanes as, as writers and creators, in a way. But I also, I just don't feel like I have that exp- I, I have I have nothing to contribute to this. I have no knowledge of this. I could go out and interview, like... You know, every female friend I have about her experience in order to write a thing. But I would also feel like maybe maybe one of y'all write it. I would feel like I was being invasive somehow, but mostly just like, I don't fucking know about this. I don't understand football. I'm coming up on my 40s and I don't understand what the fuck football is about. Like, I just I've I've tried like who's not writing it. If you know what I mean, like, why isn't this the people who are supposed to be writing those stories, writing them, allowed to write? Them? Or are they and they're just not getting out there? It's like, I guess that's the, yeah, yeah, the big yeah. 
the big rub. Um, yeah, I, to, that's dangerous territory for me because, like, if you told you know Stephen King he's not allowed to write an African American character anymore, or you know whatever, it's like of course that's the whole point of being you know a creative. But then there, you know, uh, on the acting side of things, it's like telling a straight actor that they can't play gay or a gay actor they can't play straight is like where's where's the line there but you know but i also am fully on board on the maybe maybe scarlett johansson isn't the one to play a trans character you know it's like you know so there's there's always you know this it's not a an easy distinction on uh representation versus you know the creative expression yeah right agreed right logan you have you have brought us a very exciting title you know, usually the main format of this show is it's about adaptations, but we've been waiting to do the lawn walk for a while now um, for various reasons. It doesn't have an adaptation yet, though. One is apparently on the way, but we're so desperate to talk about this fucking thing. <laughs> and when you and when you named it, I was like, well, I don't think I don't think we can do that because there's there's no adaptation yet. But Eric was like, no, fuck that. Like, <laughs> we've got to do this. Like, we got to talk about this thing. So, Scott, I'm, real quick, I don't know if you remember when we had our initial sit down. Uh, this is a little King Cast trivia for any of uh, our uh, hardcore listeners. The reason I wanted to start Stephen King podcast was because I was revisiting The Long Walk. I I'd read it multiple times as a kid. Uh, you know, as a teenager, and then in my twenties, and then you know, uh, I was going back through the Bachman books. And I was just falling in love with this particular story over again. I'm like, if I'm going to start a Stephen King podcast, you know, I really want to talk about stuff like this. I have so many thoughts and would love to talk about the long walk. And then you're like, yeah, it'd be really cool if we can all do it, you know, but we need to have like a movie angle. And I was just like, yeah, but I want to talk about the long walk at some point. And you're just like, yeah, we'll figure it out essentially. So that, that was like the, the early days. So I, this has been a title from the very beginning of this podcast that I've wanted to tackle. So uh, whenever whenever that you picked it and, and Scott was uh, brought it to me, I'm just like, yep, we're doing it. <laughs> There's our excuse. We're going to do it. When Logan well, Marshall Green says long walk, you do the fucking long walk. That's my right. response to that. So why did you pick this title? What does this what does this mean to you? And let's just start the whole conversation about this book. Well, I chose this title because it really was the first book. Stephen King book I've ever read, the Bachman books. And, you know, while I'd, I'm not exactly sure what order, I don't remember exactly the, do you guys know the order of those, those fours? Rage, right. Rage came Long out first, Walk, yeah. Running Man. What was the fourth one? Ro- Roadwork and Thinner. Roadwork yeah. and Thinner, that's right. Anyway, Roadwork's I had the, gotten the, yeah. yeah, sorry? Oh, no, I was going on just real quick. Roadwork is the one of those five that I like always forget about. Like I have no memory of that story. I've read it, I think, two or three times. It's the one that always just goes in one ear out the other for me. But but all the other ones stick around in some some way, shape or form. Yeah, that was the same for me. I It was really, you know, the two that stuck out were The Long Walk and Running Man. Um, and, and that was because I... I wasn't as into horror as I was sci-fi at that time in my childhood. Um, I, you know, I, I was, you know, we were just talking, I, I just found aliens. And so I, I'd kind of been more in that my senses were more just into space than into blood. And I don't know, I was into comic books. So I, I wasn't leaning into horror the way I would eventually, mm-hmm. I would eventually lean much more into horror than anything else as a, as a, as a young adult. But in this case, I remember being in my bedroom. I remember putting 
you know, the book down and understanding not just that it was a great story, but I really understood why short stories are essential because they're such building blocks, first off, for all the other great stories. But, but more than that, this one had such a, you know, Ada, such a beautiful arc and, and just within such a, a, you know, very limited amount of landscape. And, you know, and it was a guy who just, I, I hadn't seen someone evoke so much fear into me through just what he was withholding, what he wasn't writing. And I remember going right on reading them through, and I read that book, you know, 10 times in that I just will always remember that bedroom in Rhode Island. And I have that, I had, I don't have it anymore because it fell apart, but I had that Bachman books forever, um, just right. ripping apart on that soft cover. And the one with the skulls on, on the cover, it's like the road with all the yes, skulls. Yes, exactly. It was orange red kind red. of blue. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it was, that was, I assumed though you guys would have done it. Because, you know, it's his, I think it's his first thing he ever wrote, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it doesn't have a movie. That's the thing. And that's usually right. what this show is about. You know, sure. on, on occasion, we've made exceptions, you know, because it's something we really want to talk about. Or, you know, there's there's some guests that make a request and you're just not going to say fucking no to it, you know. Right. And this was a combination of both things, <laughs> you know. So. But- but I mean, you're right, you're right. Prometheus. You could come on here and talk about <laughs> how you fuck my mom, and I'm gonna be like, "Yes, yes, please <laughs> come on here." No, I, I would never, <laughs> I would never do that podcast for free. You would have to. No, I, I no. It was, uh, this was a no brainer for me. Um, and and not to mention, I've had like, and you know, I know, I think we might get into this. I had like ideas <laughs> because it, there hadn't been an adaptation right i remember um you know i come from the theater i said should we just jump in and i should just pitch you guys my yeah, yeah fuck it go sure go nuts. go nuts okay so here's the deal at one point and i shit you not i truly had this idea to make it a play it was going to have a <laughs> A, like an OK a, Go video with a fucking yes, yeah, with tre- <laughs> like a, a long treadmill. Right. And, and then I was like, or is it like more Beckett esque? And you know, we darken the the legs, and it's just bodies, and they just stand and shift, which could be cool. Just the actors stand there for like two hours and literally have to stand there. Yeah, I, but yeah the you did the Hamilton was, like rotating the rotating uh, you know, circle in the middle. You know what's funny about that is one of the reasons why I felt it could be executed is because of David Corrin's the man who designed that circle rotating on the Hamilton stage and is a terrific, and anyone in, in the theater nowadays would know him as one of the premier set designers. He's an old friend. And he came up, I came up through the theater with him, and he would build these stages that could just simply do anything in the right. smallest of spaces. So it was in a way that exact mind who built that that turntable um, on the Hamilton stage was the reason i felt like yeah why can't we just do a long treadmill the entire stage is a treadmill and they're just walking towards us and we can change the you know the you know obviously that could never happen <laughs> um, and it well, was what's, more what's genius driving a, an idea what's genius about this idea is that the story is so character focused that it, it really does lend itself to this to a play because it really is only about characters interacting with each other. It's one of the things I love so much about this story is that it isn't convoluted. It's not jumping locations. It is 
everything that you are discovering, you're discovering as it's happening. Right. So any little piece of information you're finding out from one of the walkers, you know, or Stebbins in the back, you know, is revealed to be the uh, the majors, you know, illegitimate kid, you know, like all this stuff you're finding out as our main character is finding it out. So you can have like that real time thing. It, it, it actually might be a good idea to run through the basic setup just in case anybody listening to this is more of a Stephen King movie fan and hasn't actually read the book since there is no, I'm right. you know, I'm right. wouldn't know the story. Fair. Um, you want to you want to do the story for sure? Yeah, I can do it. It's kind of in that running man. Or um, do you want uh, Logan? Would you like to take the honors? I, I can. Yeah. Do you want me to start? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd you guys want to grab the if you guys need to grab the baton, by all means. No, <laughs> please, please. No, you do it. Well, you, I mean, you, you, as you might think we're about to explain, it, it's set in a dystopian future, which is my favorite setting of for films. Um, it's the best future. Absolutely. And, and Stephen King is one of the greatest at telling a dystopian uh, future. And it's set in a future, the not too distant. I think it's actually, isn't it 2020? It, it's fairly close. I, I know that like that's when like Running Man was, but yeah. Yes. I think it's it's around this time, but written, you know, obviously back then. And it is it takes really the story takes place over the course of a couple of days, I believe, a few days. And it's all about a contest. Almost a week. Yeah. Almost a week. Is that what it is? Thereabouts. So this contest in this dystopian future uh, takes place. It only allows boys, but that's not necessarily a good thing. And they allow 100 boys to begin a walk. And you get to have a canteen that soldiers who will help you, guide you through this walk. um, You know, and, and the only thing you can't do is go below four miles an hour. And if, but if you do go below four miles an hour, you get a warning and you don't want to get free warnings. You get, a, you know, you get ticketed. And, you know, so these boys start this and everybody starts out happy. You know, it's act one. Everybody's, you know, getting to know each other and everyone's living in their honeymoons. And um, <laughs> I will always remember, though, if I may just uh, interject myself, I will always remember when the first boy got ticketed. Because when Stephen King wrote that his brains shot all over the grass <laughs> because the guard shot him, that had a physical effect on me. Right. Literally. I remember being in bed, dropping the book and going, no. And then reading it again. I couldn't believe why? Why did it. that? Why did that fuck you up? Well, because, you know, he gives you, he really, he doesn't, he makes it so benign. Remember, he opens it. It makes the he makes it feel very benign. This um, contest and the ticketing. You know, you feel like they're soldiers going to come over and give him a a fine. Yeah, the use of the term ticketing is so good because it's it it like at first you don't know what that is, and then you're like, oh fuck, that means like a a bullet to the head or or you know wherever they're shooting you, and it's it's such a bureaucratic sort of clean way of dealing with the ugly truth. It's it's dead on perfect it's so sudden so it just made it so much more awful that's one of the things i love about this story there's so much humanity in it but it's a humanity with a burning backdrop behind them you know chase but that's what i love about stephen king is he can be so human and (laughs) so sadistic at the same time brutally sadistic right yeah 
So what and happens after that first act? So after the boy gets killed, the first boy goes down. I, I think it was number 20. I always remember. I think it was 27 or something like that. But I used to remember that number. For, uh, no, I don't. But um, after that boy goes down, it's all it's all real. Stakes are, you know, <laughs> stakes are high. And the boys have to now balance the crutch of companionship with uh, whether or not they want to get to know these these other contestants personally who will eventually die. Um, there will mm-hmm. be only one winner. And they all, they, but they all have these beautiful um, kind of poetic exits, one by one, if you will. And so it takes place starting at the border of Canada. They march, they walk, and uh, slowly they are all taken down because they all, their cramps, their legs cramp, or they run out of uh, water and because you only have so much water and so I believe you only get so many so much food and you get that every day so once you run out that's all you get um, right but you know as they all drop you know one by one and leaving kind of the core five I'd say is I think that's about right and the reason that core five of course uh, lasts is because they 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 were teammates but they're now helping of course, other, yeah. they were helping each other but now of course that's the the you know that's the sword of Damocles. So you find I, I'm trying to remember exactly, you know. In the end, you you it looks as if I, I don't. Maybe I shouldn't give away the end. Are we giving away the ends of these? these yeah, books? Uh, we'll just put a spoiler warning right here. <laughs> yeah, um, we're gonna spoil this thing. So if you have not read this, stop this episode right now. Go read it and then come back. Go ahead, yeah, come, please, Logan. Yeah, because because yeah. I don't think it's it's really possible to talk about this in any sort of depth without Fuck touching no. on the end here. So. Well, um, you know, I, the, our, I, our hero, of course, and that's the reason why is our hero is, is, is the loser you believe at least I, I, until the very end. And then I think it, it and like kind of, I, if I can remember, it's kind of in the, sh- in a, as a shock, it, the guy goes down. Um, now I can't spoil it because I can't remember the names. Um, <laughs> uh, Stebbins. Yeah. Stebbins. Yeah. Stebbins. Um, right. Stebbins is the, the son of the, the major, right? Right. And, um, and the major's kind of walking towards them, isn't that right? I believe. Again, well, yeah. Where I have not come and prepared his car in Kusama. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have an argument over the ending because I think we, I know Eric and I interpret it in different ways. And that's mm. basically where we're at now. But let's uh, talk because I think my quote unquote interpretation. <laughs> okay. But finish out like. The literal interpretation, like what actually happens on the page. So in the end, on the page, right when you think Stebbins is going to win, he cut, he crashes to a halt with a, I think it's his cramp, and it's his third warning and is killed in front. And I believe his father's standing right there. Um, I mm-hmm. think I think he just drops dead, does he? Not? I think that like he's the guy that like has he's the Terminator here. He hasn't been really flagged much this whole time, but whatever right. it is is. And he just drops dead. Like he, yeah. he just runs out of gas and that's it. And, that's right. he, and so he's like dead on the ground and he's getting his warnings, even though he's dead. Yeah. And yeah. So our main character, Garrity, what a uh, humiliation, by the way, <laughs> to be lying dead on the fucking hot pavement and be getting warnings like fuck off. Right. Dude, I'm dead already. Yeah. He's just floating above. So Garrity, our, our main character wins at this point and the major is coming up to, you know, yeah. give him his prize. And it's important to note that the major is kind of like the Orwellian 
big brother of this where he's yes this mm-hmm. militaristic authority figure that you know is is like scary and uh, you know like kind of despotic almost and uh, but he's also the one that's uh, the winner of this gets whatever they want for you know for the rest of their life that's the big prize you know the world's falling apart everybody's poor and needs you know medicine and shit but if you win this then you you and everybody you love is set up for the rest of your life that's so right. this guy wins the major's coming up to him to congratulate him and uh garrity keeps walking that is the end where he walks past him well, but but no that's not the end then because remember doesn't he break out into a run that is correct logan he breaks because well, that's the best yes. part is he has this like weird energy that he like somehow pulls out and he like well, he, musters sees the, to, he, he sees the fucking like dark man is the term in the in the text who's like beckoning him on that's right right and he fucking runs toward that after he after he gets, you know, like he goes down, but he gets back up and then he starts running and he runs through a crowd of fucking supporters, including the major towards this dark figure. And that's how the story ends. So, Logan, what happened? There? <laughs> <laughs> so I I mean, well, here's obviously I can only remember so much so I can only interpret so much, but. I always remember, like, wasn't there something about him trying to get home? Like, he was only wanted was to get, like. It was his girlfriend was. Yeah. was yeah. Pan, uh, a Pam or. Um, Jan. Very close. Jan. It Jan. was Jan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's something. Yeah, exactly. He just. I, and I was wondering, like, if there was some connection there to, you know, because I, I mm. again, I don't remember enough, so I can't speak about it intelligently. Um, and this is where the rubber meets the road. No, but you, <laughs> okay. you, but you live with an understanding of the yeah. ending of the long walk, right? Like if just off the top of your head, if someone was like, how does the long walk end? You would tell them the following, like, they, don't get analytical about it. Just be like, you know, this is your first thought. The long walk ends. Um, my understanding of how the long walk ends is that a boy wins a contest and instead of getting anything he wants, he decides to run for the unknown and what he doesn't know and his fears and all of that. That would be my analytical. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, no. that yeah. is that is exceptionally more thoughtful than my <laughs> which is uh, that's that- my out of your ass response. No, it's good. That's a good response. I think when he goes down, everything from that point on is basically a dream and he's running towards death. And if it's not death, it's madness. They talk earlier in the novella about, you know, the fact that like former people who have done the long walk, even the winners have not gone on to great things. They're not building empires with their winnings. They're fucking, they're dying. That's right. We're going insane. Mentally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I think that's what's happening in that final scene. I think uh, the major son goes down. I think Garrity goes down. And then everything after that is up for debate. But my interpretation of it is that it's either a dream thing as he's being welcomed into death or madness. And either way, like he might be the quote unquote winner. But but you're saying your interpretation is there is no winner that year of the long walk. Yeah, there's there's no there's no winner any year of the long walk. Hmm. I don't. Think. Oh, I, I, well, touche. No, I I think that like there is there is people that that make it whether or not they 
have the mental fortitude or whatever their families are set up. Like, I think that that that's the whole propaganda behind this and that the whole distraction, it's very running man esque in that very running, man, you know, yeah. in that, you know, this is what people watch for entertainment. Like the crowds around the gather at, at different points are thick and, and this is what's distracting people. Um, so I think that there are people that, that when they, it just, take something from them, whether they can fully enjoy it, whether they're locked in a room on a, you know, you know, on a life support system or whatever the fuck, you know, by the end of it. Um, I, I think that there are people, that's my interpretation anyway, but I think that the ending, I fall more on the uh, mental breakdown side of things. He, what I interpret those dark beck, because I, they, they describe him as beckoning figures are, is that he's still seeing, people that are in front of him and he can't stop walking until he's the it's last not a, it's That's not, really interesting. It's not figures though. It's a figure. It's one person. And that changes uh, the, the tone yeah. of the whole fucking thing. It, if it were Does a it, crowd, I, I mean, would agree but, but with all you. All it takes is one. But yes, it, it, it's, yes, it's it just been yes, it's it just absolutely been one does. person for like the last two, two or three hours of this. So he only has to beat the, that final person. And when he actually beats that final person, he's the last one left. He still sees one more in front of him. So it's never ending for him. Like he we, is broken completely mental, mentally at this point. We might be talking about a different final person. I'm, a, I'm talking about the, the dark man. Who is that? I, in your, he he in gets your, a silhouette. Your, what? It, it is a shadow of, of literally anybody that has already fallen from, from him. It, he doesn't. I don't think that, that it's a very specific figure. I think you can read it as death. If you want to, but for Garrity, I really just think it is yet another boy that he has to uh, hmm. outlast. What? Sisyphusian for in your eyes? Yes, no, he, he is forever on this road. He's he's snapped mentally. Like he's not in a position to be thinking about any of this stuff. He he is broken. He is a shell of a person at this point. He is one, but he is gone. He's checked out. So there there is there I is nothing agree. rational left there. I agree with you on that. I just feel like the dark man himself, whatever that character or person is, I don't think it's some rando in the fucking crowd that no. happens to be standing in. Like, I think that's, I, I think it's only somebody that Garrity of, sees. Yeah. I it's think not it's something that's actually there. It's something that Garrity sees. It's not a real, I think it's thing. death or madness. And I think, well, that, it is madness, but, but I, I think that we can agree on that. Cause that's, it, it's his madness. He's seeing something that's not there. And what, but what I guess the disagreement on is what that thing <laughs> is or represents. I think that it really is just, you know, him going, I need to keep walking. Cause I can't stop. Cause somebody else is still walking. That's the only thing that's left in here. It's, it's like Pavlovian at this point, he just one foot in front of the other, mm. that's it. And, and then he races mm. to catch up to it. That, that is the mm-hmm. end of the. Very well. The story. Uh, Logan Marshall Green, your response. Who is yeah. the dark man? <laughs> I, I'm i kind of leaning. I'm really interested in this insanity over the death. Just, just of the chase for the rest right. of, you know, that's what it's going to be for him. It's right. always going to be a chase now. Um, it, you, you have know. to also keep in mind his mental state leading up to this. This is like we're we're in his head throughout this entire thing. And in this final stretch, he's mixing up places and, and he's seeing people that aren't there and all this stuff. So I I, I, yeah. I, I think that that's that's why and, I, I kind of lean that way. Dark not so literal. I like that idea because then he's not so literal. He's more like fringy and could be, you know, that soldier that will always be over his shoulder. 
as well, or, you know, that kid in front of him. I just, I think what we're all saying really is it's definitely symbolic. We're all Not in the same ballpark. <laughs> I think it's all details um, that we're arguing over. Yeah. yeah. But it's so interesting to revisit it through your interpretation of it because, you know, I've been, I just, I haven't thought about it in so long. And yet that feels so fresh to me and yet so king and so his. Right. So, you know, in the, that symbolism he uses anyway, I would think is is absolutely intended. It's interesting that he wrote this thing in 79 and then Running Man, like, uh, 82. So well, then that's published. The, that's published. Okay, he, he, he wrote. He, this is literally the first thing he, he completed, and that's yeah. what's, like, I made a note here saying this right? could be. This yeah, he wrote it in his freshman year of college in in the mid sixties. Yeah, and I, I have a note here, like going, this is I think his legit first masterpiece. Like I, I love Carrie, I love Salem's Lot, uh, but I think like in terms of the published order, The Shining is the first time he's firing on all cylinders. Um, right, you know where mm. structure and and idea and character, it's all working perfectly. Um, but I think if I'm, you know, not mistaken, I'm going to make a declarative statement. I think the long walk is his first written masterpiece. Uh, it didn't get published till 79, but it was, uh, it was written in the mid sixties, which is also kind of why there's such a, an angry anti-government like Vietnam era, well, you that's know, a, that's really going on. That's what I was building up to okay. is I think that running man and also, uh, the long walk are, are, responses in some way to Vietnam. Right. Oh, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the stand is the same, the same thing. Like those early anti-government King books were all Vietnam, Watergate, Nixon era. I guess I I guess I think of the stand is more like a, I guess like a blanket anti-government thing. Right. Right. But I think of the long walk and um, the running man is sort of, very specific in terms of this idea of feeding young men into a machine and seeing them killed. Right. And so, um, would you I, say I, I guess running men is anti-corporation though? Or running gov- man? Yeah. I think it's both. Uh, co- I think it's both. Or government. That he's well, in the running man, it's so blurred because the government and the fucking, uh, media are, are so interconnected. They're the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like I the, don't. The movie is more anti yeah. anti corporation. The but the the book is very much anti government. It's all yeah. That's true. The, that's a good distinction. Mm-hmm. Before we we start wrapping up, I would very much love to dive into some of the characters. I would like to talk about how Battle Royale and Hunger Games owes so much to this story. We, yeah, Battle Royale, absolutely. I mean, um, it is it is you know the same template, but I think out of all three of those stories, and I worship Battle Royale. Like I sought out like a, a Japanese uh, DVD and like bought a, a region free system to watch that over and over again. I love Battle Royale, mm-hmm. um, but I. Objectively, I think that the better version of of this conceit is the long walk, and it all boils down to the characters. Um, I, I think that the character work in this story is second to none, and uh, it's not just our main character. I think that the specifically, I want to point out a, a guy in this uh, who's one of the walkers, and it's a guy's name's Barkovich. Barkovich. He, <laughs> he, I want to say he's my favorite character. Uh, but I don't want to imply that I think he is a good person. Uh, I, he's my favorite character because he's such a fucking asshole. 
Um, he is this guy. Like, there's a lot of people. Oh, is in that this, the guy who's game. always like taunting them and shit? You're right. So this is yeah. the, this is the character. This is the character who. Walk you, on your you, the, yeah, yeah, our main yeah, character. Yeah. Our main character is like setting up like this musketeer thing. He falls in with a group of four or five kids and they're all watching out you know we talked about this they're watching each other's back and this kid's like you guys are idiots because only one person can win this and you helping this person is gonna get you a bullet in the head what 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 are you thinking about early on he gets in a confrontation with another walker that like causes that that person i think he trips or something right and Mm -hmm. he hurts himself and then when that happens like he gets ticketed he gets shot and so everybody turns on this this character um, and what I love so much about this this guy, because he is such an asshole, is there's a moment about two thirds of the way through and he's making it when all these nice, quote unquote, nice characters aren't making it. There's a moment where he gets actually hurt by being shunned by everybody. And it's, it is such an honest portrayal of a bully, mm-hmm. you know, that that I that there's this need to be accepted and also this need to put themselves above everybody else. And he is such a fascinating character to me. So Barkovich is a dickhead. I'm so glad he he uh, got ticketed and, you know, paved the way for, you know, for one of the nice guys to quote unquote win. But uh, uh, but it, it is a prime example of what I love so much about the character work at play here. And there's all that Lord of the Flies, you know, right. um, thematics as well at play. I mean, or relationships and and, and archetypes as well. It's just right. so, and, you know, mix that with Battle Royale. I mean, that it really is kind of the hub between them two. You know, Lord of the Flies to the long walk. And there, there's like also, yeah, there's also another character named Scram that I think is really interesting too. He's the He's the one that's like the Vegas odds favorite. To win, he's oh, like right. the. I think they just described him as like being built yeah. like a moose, and he just <laughs> he he can walk. It'd be like the Schwarzenegger of the group, right? right. It's like this guy is just going to walk the whole way, and and he probably would have, but like just there's a chance element to all this stuff too. What if you just get a Charlie horse at the wrong time? You know, what if you're iron? Def- you know, you're you're not getting enough water, and you have a heat stroke. There's all this you know chance element to it, and Scram is the perfect example because there's a. Uh, they walk through a storm at a certain point, a big thunderstorm and everybody, you know, is shivering and, and, you know, makes it out of it or whatever. And he catches pneumonia during it. And he's like, essentially this like nice, you know, this big, nice dude that was supposed to make it. He's got a, a, a he, they're all teenagers, but he's got like a young wife and, and, and a baby or whatever. And everybody essentially likes him, even though he's competition and they all like make a pact and they promise him before he, he uh, gets his ticket that whoever wins, they're all agreeing to, uh, you know, give some money to, to his family and, and, and all this stuff. Like there's so many great King characters mm-hmm. in, in this thing and just, like it, it makes it makes it such a joy to revisit because even though it's such a dark story, like you you just kind of know these guys and you you love spending time with them. Mm-hmm. Logan, would you do the long walk? Like twenty years old or whatever yeah. the the peak of your prowess is. You're in the best physical shape of your life. You're not, you're already not a guy who's in in bad shape, but like <laughs> your your peak performance level. This this career of being an actor is a lot like <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and I am not Garrity, um, uh, nor Stebbins. Um, I would absolutely. Are you, are you Scrapple or whatever his wrong. fucking name is? Oh, Scram. Yeah, that's a good question. Who are you from The Long Walk? Like, what character would you be? Um, mm. 
I, you know, I probably would be more of a Stebbins because I'm kind of more of a lone wolf in, in the business anyway. And um, mm. but but I would definitely I would that's probably who I'd want to play too would be Stebbins. Um, mm. Because I wouldn't have to learn any lines. Um, <laughs> okay, he's quiet for a lot of it, but he also, when he does speak, he knows things that the other players don't know because he's been so intently studying. And he's got great motivation. Our lead character's motivation is to see his girlfriend on the halfway mark or whatever. But Stebbins is what he wants, what his wish is, is to be accepted by his actual father and recognized as his legitimate son. So that is what they're saying. The reason why he becomes the clear front runner at a certain point, because he just has that burning yeah, motivation that, yeah. you know, he's, yeah. he's got to stick to. It's a it, it, great character. It's a great, I'd probably be Harkness if it was me, uh, it, which one I would never make it past the, you know, first mile, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, way too <laughs> out of shape and always have been. But uh, Harkness is a character who is there and excitedly like taking notes and saying that if he wins, he's going to write a book about the whole thing. So he's like interviewing all of his competitors and stuff. And like that, that to me is like the energy I think that I would bring to it. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get all this material and, and write about my experiences after it's insane to be out on that road and be interviewing people and wasting your breath. I didn't say I so was that's smart. A bad, I never I'm said de- I would make yeah, it. Yeah, I'm just saying it's a bad <laughs> choice. Logan, so would you do the long walk? Yes, I would. Knowing you're risking a bullet to the brain? Oh, you mean like in real life? Oh, I think. Yes. Right. See, I instantly go to, wait, they're making the long walk, finally? <laughs> you're right. Um, uh, <laughs> and if you ask me it twice in five minutes. Um, I Well, you didn't not, answer it the last I time. I would not do the long... I, myself, in my best... I mean, I def there's a my ego would do the long walk. Right. But I'm 44 now and luckily my ego is finally taking a little bit of a backseat. So I don't think <laughs> if you're asking me now, would no, 16 year old you have done it? That's what I said before, like at your peak physical prowess. In exchange for your peak physical prowess right, and now, your you're ego, asking me would I enter the contest, right? Yes. Right. Like, yeah. do you think uh, you could have done it? Do you think you'd risk it all? If I were in a dystopian, so but I get to place myself in a dystopian future, correct? Sure. I mean, you there's know, fucking tanks future, driving beside you like, and shooting you in the face if you, yeah, if you I fuck up. Would. So I'd say I that's think, dystopian. I think in my peak, I see I'm a I'm a I'm definitely built for long distance. Mm. How um, many miles do you think you would walk? Straight? Over four miles? Per over hour? four miles an hour, yeah. Let me, let me get real with you. Yeah, get fucking real with me, man. Straight? How many miles or how long could I walk? Um, I guess the question is, is we're just talking four miles an hour. It only matters if you're fucking outpacing these do. motherfuckers. You know? um, I think I could do a day, at least. They go to like day. six days in this book. I know. I'm saying I can do a day. I'm not saying I could win this thing. Okay. I, could <laughs> All do, right. I could walk without stopping. For a day, yeah. But you're but you're saying you do it, but also you think you'd be out after a day, yeah. Because I think in um uh, in my future, what does that earn you? Desperate you, measures, brother. Well, I'm not, I've got a, I've got a, I've got like kids to feed still, but now they're in rags, you know, and they're, <laughs> I've got only one dog now, and I'm fucking furious. <laughs> I don't have bills to pay because nobody's knocking on my door. I don't have a door anymore, but. Right. I I remember what my mom said to me. And she said she wanted her ashes spread in Italy. 
and nobody flies anymore in my dystopian future. So right. I knew the only way I could get a get abroad would be to win this thing. So that's why I'm gonna I'm gonna enter this thing. <laughs> and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get one to the head or a few to the head. Um, <laughs> In about a day. W- would you be the nice guy in there? Would you like join up? Is that your tact, or would you be more Barkovichy and trying to like mentally sabotage your competitors? No, I'm the guy who like breaks out of the blocks and gre- gets a cramp. <laughs> right, <laughs> I go way too fast, and that's why I only last a day. I don't. <laughs> Not patient. I wanted those watermelon slices so bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And that's such such a great part of the book because like you're weirdly with them, you know, like never any story style. You're like in the book with them experiencing this in a weird way. And then when they're like the descriptions of like the juice, the cold watermelon juice, like, you know, how refreshing it is. is like it just makes you want. I'm like, damn, I got to have some watermelon now. Um, I can tell you I would never do this. And I'll, and it's it's not about a, a physical thing, although I feel like I would immediately fail that. It's about like, like, I hate casinos. You know, I like being in a casino, but I don't like spending money in a casino. Right. Because I feel like the the house is always just like royally butt fucking me. And I feel like that's what this situation is. There's no reason to ever bet on anything unless you know you're going to win. That's, Wait a that's minute. My, that's that my opinion. That means you're saying you would never bet on yourself? That's for me. That's that's no, why. It, no, 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 no. That's not true at all. That's not true at all because I said I, I would never bet unless I know I'm going to win. I'm going to win a bunch of times. Like I, I have a very, I have maybe, depending on how you talk, who you talk to, maybe too high of opinion about myself. But I think that I would like without some degree of certainty, like we're we're talking about a thing where you're going up against like however many number of people who you don't fucking know. These guys could have cabs that are fucking jacked like till (laughs) next week where they're just fucking, you know, uh, terminators storming up the street as as Eric said earlier. Yeah, yeah, and they're all Dolph Lundgren and Rocky Four. They're just like scientifically built to <laughs> not about the size yeah. of the dog and the boys. Come on. <laughs> so I, I just feel like I feel like the bet isn't good enough for me. I would I would need more the, de- the deck's too stacked. Yeah, 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 yeah. What just, about if it were only a fifty contestants? I don't know. Do I get to meet them beforehand? Yeah, I'll just <laughs> you can size them up. <laughs> Yeah, size them up, of course. No, if it's but fucking, you do get to meet well, dude, I'll tell you, if it's times. forty, if if it's forty nine guys that are like four hundred pounds and they're five feet tall, versus me, like, yeah, I'm gonna take that fucking bet, you know. But if I can't see that, those are the guys I want to be walking against. I don't want to walk against the tall, skinny dude who looks like he's gonna fall over with the wind. Those are the guys who can walk forever. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, we're we're saying the opposite thing. But we're in agreement, basically. Like, and my my thing is, I would need more information. I don't like the uh, the the lottery aspect of this, where you can you have no idea what you're up against. The random things you might get pneumonia. You could be the best one, and you might get pneumonia. You know, it's uh, what time your shoe year? might fall apart. What, what time yeah. of year was it again? I can't remember. May first is spring, when yeah. yeah the uh, was- the long walk starts every year. It would be funny and- if the long walk like. 
like it it feels to me like a television production thing mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know like a super bowl kind of thing so well, it would be funny if flashbacks well well just like in this yeah. reality it, like if you're watching it it would be funny to me if there were a long walk where like they're like these are our hundred contestants and then within like two hours 90 of them are dead and then <laughs> And then it's like we have 10 left. And then like in another hour, they solve it. But, <laughs> you know, every a, every other year is like a multi-day yeah. thing. But they, there was this one year where we we picked wrong, folks. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't. Well, they, they talk about that a couple mm-hmm. of times in the book. Like there was they make note of of uh, like yeah, the, fir- the first person like that New ever York died or... was like, yeah, it was like real, real close or whatever. It was like within somebody like. Uh, Charlie horsed right right away or something. It was within the first like mile or something. They, 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 there's all these landmarks uh, as they go going. Yeah, we haven't uh, you know walkers haven't made it this far in 15 years or whatever. So now we're past that mark. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. My answer is of course no. I would never <laughs> never do it. I've just never been that guy to be in the shape to do it. So it's easy for me to go. I'm not gonna get shot in the head. So I've I've told this on the or I've mentioned this on the podcast before but i went to military school for high school and once a year they used to take us out on an eight mile march where they would take us to you know we're in the middle of nowhere and they would take us to another place in the middle of nowhere eight miles on you know and then we'd have to march back the next day brutal like the first time i did this i got a sun poisoning and it was just like profusely vomiting and it was just just fucking awful i have no idea why they did this to us that's eight miles like these Mm -hmm. motherfuckers are going up the eastern seaboard you know so so i don't think that in unless i was given a shot at like imagine a mortal combat screen right where you're looking at all the possible people you can you can fight (laughs) right you know and if they were all just absolute piles of shit like where i was like oh this guy's going out real quick that guy will be gone in 20 minutes this guy will be you know like if it was like that i can imagine maybe risking it but they're never gonna give you a look at it ahead of time so so yeah i don't think i'd do it a lot of rng is what we're saying (laughs) right (laughs) yes Um, before we, we wrap up, I would love to talk about the long history of this, uh, story not being adapted real quick. George Romero for uh, a while in the eighties mm. was going to do it. And that would have been unbelievable. We, it's a perfect match of mm-hmm. a filmmaker and, and material. You know, he already works well with King him being so, so deeply cynical <laughs> about humanity, you know, he would have leaned into all the the right spots of the, this book. Frank Darabont for a very long time had the rights. And I remember back in the mist days when I was in Darabont's orbit for a while, I spent time on the mist set and, mm. you know, all this stuff. We talked a, a bit about both the mist and, and this, cause the, these are like in my, both of those are in my top five King stories. I, I listen, I love Andre uh, Overdahl, you know, autopsy of Jane Doe rips, you know, I think he's uh, a, a really good filmmaker. I think he, he's the one who is in the lead to, to direct this. Uh, I would give anything for them to back a money truck up to Frank Darabont's house and just bring him out of whatever retirement mm-hmm. self-imposed or not he is in and have him do 
it doesn't need to be a giant budget, but do like a legit 25, 30 million dollar. The budget the budget's not big. It's the size of the money truck. You have to pull up to a house right now to get Frank to right. direct something to, to while come he's out in the middle deal, of deal with suing all the Hollywood with, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So there's that, you know, uh, and of course we can throw in Logan's name as the general. You, you, sorry, sorry, buddy, you've aged out of the the main cast, but uh, yeah. you know, but I could see you rocking a rocking some aviators or whatever. Since absolutely, <laughs> oh, I'll look over some boys. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I loved. By the way, I was a huge fan of the Mist, the movie. I never read. Oh, the me book, too. Though. Is it really different? Only the ending. Yeah, it's pretty much. Oh, really? Almost the ending the, line, the movie yeah. is bananas. It's yeah. great. Yeah, King said. King has said that like. Once he read Frank's ending that he wishes he had come up with that when he wrote the story. Uh, so he, uh, which is a great compliment. I'm sure any writer would love to hear who's adapting the, the uh, original novella or short story is more optimistic. It's they, they kind of are driving away through the mist and the mist is never ending. Um, and they like kind of stop in a Howard Johnson, I think. And the, and David Drayton is writing out, you know, the, this is what happened. This is the story of, of my life, but they had heard uh, on the radio, they had heard uh, a human voice. So there is hope out there um, that they can, you know, go find remaining mm-hmm. humanity. So it kind of ends on an ambiguous, but hopeful yeah. note. Gotcha. Um, and in many ways, the ending of the Darabont mist is a much happier ending, but it's just not for David <laughs> Drayton. You know, humanity wins. The mist is pushed back, but uh, David Drayton is about five minutes behind on, <laughs> on, on finding out about that. Yeah. yeah it's all about timing life. That's, that's the moral yeah. of the story. That, that is such an incredible film though. And, and I love I'm it. Yeah. Fan of the black and white version as well. Oh I'm yeah. Sure it's great. So does anyone have any uh, final thoughts here? That they want to get in on the long one. I don't know. Logan, do you that, have any more you know, to, to throw I, in you know, about your stage play? Um, David Corns and I spoke. And it's about time I give him a call. And yes. he's going to design my stage production of The Long Walk. And when <laughs> it opens, and once all the theaters open, which I hope is soon, uh, you guys are going to be invited to the opening night. Oh, we'll oh please. There. I just realized yeah, I got uh, kid act casting in front of me like, right oh. <laughs> well and th- and that's so- that's something i think is important <laughs> if, if you if anybody who's adapting this I, this can't be you know 25 year old cw people mm-hmm. trying to play 16 year olds it has to be in that 16 to 18 it's range stamp- I mean- that is what what makes the difference it, it's like doing hunger games you know and going we're going to cast julia roberts instead of jennifer lawrence you know what i mean it, it just it doesn't have the impact when it's clear adults in this dangerous situation okay but to be fair if we got an invite to a live production of the long walk starring nothing but 95 year old people i'd be oh. there day one you <laughs> right know. you ha- you have to I go don't... the full other side of the spectrum if you're gonna <laughs> yeah do i don't it. You know, <laughs> interesting. Bring them out. I mean, I think Worcester Group did that to like Romeo and Juliet and made them all 80 year olds, kind of the opposite. So. <laughs> right. Why can't we? Um. <laughs> but no joke, I, you know, all jokes aside, your idea of doing this as a stage play is, I think, kind of inspired and I would love to see it. So, yeah. So uh, I, I, I would love if you, if you do it, we're, we're there with bells on for sure. You got it. Well, you guys have invites for sure. I'm going to, I am going to call David Corns and maybe we, uh, maybe we'll talk about it. <laughs> do it well hamilton came out on disney plus it's out there we've all seen it yep you know 
He's got to right. move on now, and what he's got to move on to is that's a long right. And there's no theater right now, so he's definitely available. <laughs> yeah, he's got the time to to develop this new no, he's groundbreaking actually, technology. He, he, he does a lot of uh, music as well and, and, and film, so he, he's just fine. Awesome. Uh, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tell us about what they've got coming up on the horizon. Uh, we touched on this a little bit before, but can you? Tell us a little bit more about your your next film. Yeah, I've got a I've got a, a few films coming out this year, and the f- the next one is one that just premiered at Sundance. It's called How It Ends. It's a as uh, you know, I think you put it uh, best an apocalyptic comedy. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the first first comedy I've really ever been in. Uh, it's terrific, um, very polarizing though, and um i think you dig it it's fun it's got a lot of m- incredible comedians in it uh in actors. i saw that the cast is is outstanding it's yeah there's no reason i should be a part of it and uh yeah and then i've got a couple of other films uh later this year but i don't know when they're going to be released yet so one of them is definitely up your alley so oh I'm yeah i'm sure we might have some more convos about it i hope prometheus three <laughs> i know um but yeah that's it that's that's what i got for now and i'm uh just finished a script and so i'm also going to be hopefully back in the director's chair uh soon nice right on man well this was a pleasure thank you so much for being here i hope you get to see your live version of long walk on the stage one day Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it, and thank you guys so much for having me. It, it it's it's an honor to be part of this ca- uh, podcast because you guys have. I mean, I, I love. I've been listening, and I love what you guys do. You guys oh, are wow. together. Um, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, so good luck with the rest of it too. Um, and uh, yeah, there it is. Many thanks to Logan for joining us for that discussion once again about one of my all-time favorite King books. I was so happy to finally delve into it. And I'm sure you could pick that up when you're listening to that, that episode that I'm just like, well, I want to talk about all the characters. Let's talk about this. I want to get into the nitty gritty. Right. Uh, I was a little over anxious, I think uh, to, to dive into this, but uh, like I said, in the episode, this has been like here since the beginning of the origins of the King cast. It was literally what I was reading that made me think like, Hey, maybe I could do a Stephen King podcast and, and brought this to you, Scott. So, so mm-hmm. I'm glad we finally hit it. I am as well. Logan was a little fuzzy on some of the details, but uh, we we're happy to have had him here. And, uh, you know, uh, we hope to hear from him again sometime. Right. So, and we should acknowledge there's there's a, a time in there where he, you know, mistakenly thought that Paul Verhoeven directed uh, the Running Man movie, which is a, a, a mistake I can understand, you know, as yeah. we talked about in, in our episodes on it, like it's it's uh rewatching it now it's very much in that kind of robocop mold so it definitely has For a bare sure. sense of humor um yeah. and uh, i also made uh made a whoopsie doodle as well when i referred to the major as the general once but uh, uh i'm gonna pretend that was uh, on purpose and that i said that for some sort of deep meaningful reason precisely what i would do well let's <laughs> tell them about what's uh what's coming up next week all right well before we do that uh i want to read you something mr wampler Yes. This is from the second to last page of The Long Walk. It says, Garrity stepped aside. He was not alone. The dark figure was back, up ahead, not far, beckoning. He knew that figure. If he could get a little closer, he could make out the features. Which one hadn't he walked down? 
Was it Barkovich, Collie Parker, Percy? What's his name? Who was it? So I think I just wanted to pull out some receipts there about what the ending was. He definitely, it's not death. He thinks there's another Walker in front of him. I just wanted to say, I think I was but right. What on is the, clo- but what is the cloaked figure? It's not cloaked. It's a dark figure. And okay, he's what's going, the dark figure. We're going to get into this again in his mind, in <laughs> yep. Garrity's mind. He, what I just read you, he's like, is that, you know, is that Barkovich? Is that somebody else? He's broken. All these people he knows are dead. But he's like, who is that? It's still somebody I have to walk down. I'm not done. And I don't think he's dead at this point either, because it, like a couple paragraphs later, the major is putting his hand on his shoulder to stop him from walking away. And he shrugs it off. And then that's when he runs because he's running after that figure. So it's not like he died while he was on the ground with uh, with Stebbins. So I just want to say, having gone it's, back it, and listened through that episode, I was like, I, I need to reread this last page because uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one. Listen, I'll have to go back and listen to it. It's been months since we recorded this episode. But the, um, that is true. I think that the figure is representative of death. I don't think it's literally the Grim Reaper standing there. You sure. Know? Metaphorically, uh, I'll agree that that is, pretend, that is where it's going. Okay. Uh, well, we can yes. meet in the middle there. We can meet in the middle yes. there. Yes, we found some common ground. Uh, next week, we are going into territory that is both familiar and new. We are revisiting King's story trucks by looking at the not maximum overdrive adaptation of it, but rather the 90s. Is it direct to video? Feels direct to video. Oh, very much so. Direct to video adaptation of the same name called trucks. I think that it's not too much of a spoiler to say that we think that trucks makes maximum overdrive look like good fellas. It's a fun episode. If we knew we were going to tackle this um, kind of ridiculous title, this ridiculous version, we were going to want to bring in somebody funny and that we did like usually we won't tell you who it is, but we will give a hint and say that it's a comedian and he's Mm -hmm. part of a very well-known comedy group. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he brings the goods, and he even pees on air. Get ready for that if you uh, are particularly um, bothered by the sound of urination. You're going to want to close your ears whenever that happens in the episode. <laughs> I don't have a timestamp for you, so it's going to be a real roll the dice for you. But but good luck with that. It's a king and cast first. A king cast first, and then on uh, Friday. We've got a brand new bonus episode hitting the Patreon again, of course, as we do every Friday. Um, and what we've done is we're well, we're covering another portion of the Dark Tower sort of uh, mythology in the world of that series various books and what have you. We are covering the Marvel Comics series of uh, the Dark Tower. And to do that, we brought in a guy named Richard Newby. He's a uh, film critic and commentator. He's written for The Hollywood Reporter, The New York Times, Fangoria, Inverse.com. This guy knows comics up, down, left, and right. And Eric and I were, well, we haven't read the Dark Tower comics all the way through. So we wanted to have somebody come on and, and talk to us about it and see if they could uh, sell us on the idea of finishing those up. And... um Richard was pretty successful in that aspect. I've been I've been thinking about picking those up now and, you know, finally getting the job done. It's definitely a good one for the Dark Tower nerds that uh, listen to us. Absolutely. And we'll always find an excuse to talk about the Dark Tower. That's just going to be. Oh, a for sure. And if you want to listen to that one, uh, make sure to sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. You can always mm-hmm. find us on Twitter at Kingcast19. Uh, rate review, five stars, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, be nice to each other. You know, help a stranger out. Don't be an asshole. Get vaccinated. All that stuff. 
Yeah. We just got another stuff. one star review. Damn it. All right. So we need two more five star reviews from yes, Provax people to balance that out. Yes. <laughs> Can't keep my damn mouth shut. All right. Well, we'll see you next week for trucks and that on air urination. And this Friday, we'll see you for Dark Tower comic book talk over on our Patreon. Have a good week, everyone. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>